out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Does sound rather exciting. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall, the C86 show, bringing you, bringing you the finest in indie pop and beyond. As you know, we love a special guest this week. It is going to be the turn of Red Cross all the way from the USA. Because I spoke to Steve McDonald very recently from LA land to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other sort of groovy stuff. So this is the interview. Enjoy it. It's quality chat. And uh, this is the first part, the only part really, where after a few minutes of babbling and saying hi, both ways there, um, I asked about those early years of what he was listening to. And this was Steve's response. Steve, it's over to you to save this exciting interview. Take it away. Sure. I mean, I guess I, you know, you, you inspired me to go even earlier <laughs> to back to when I was about five years old and, um, and I was listening to, um, thanks to the fact that I have an older brother, Jeff McDonald, who plays in Red Cross also, and he's, uh, almost four years older than me. And so, but he was also at very, um, he was very advanced for his age. Uh, he, you know, he was turning me on to music that was actually really popular in England, but not necessarily in America at the time. So when I was entering elementary school, um, like five years old, I remember being obsessed with Elton John, uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And, 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 there, and I remember we had Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. Yes. So, you know, Honky Cat, stuff like that. Well, it's interesting because I've got an older brother who was seven years older than me and, um, and I thought he was terribly cool. And he turned me on to various albums at the time, which I didn't realise. So there was the Sgt. Pepper album by the Beatles which at the you know was wasn't that old then and and hadn't got the critical acclaim but the other one was goodbye yellow brick road and i was really obsessed with a track at the last the last track on side 4 called harmony which i thought I, was the best song i've ever heard i love that song too <laughs> um, i was really intrigued by that album i used to stare at the um, the, the 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 drawings the illustrations yes inside like for hours as i'd listen and um very intrigued by all the young girls of Alice. I wanted to know what that was about. Yes. And, and um, uh, yes, there all was... sorts of things. But, um, but yeah, so growing up, you know, Jeff just turned me on. And, and we had the Beatles in our family, too. But my, uh, I have aunts and uncles. My father's the oldest of, I think, maybe eight or nine siblings. So his youngest siblings were like 15, 20 years younger than him making them more like older siblings to me and my brother. And, uh, and so I had an aunt that was 16 in 1966 when the Beatles were on their last tour of America. And she actually took a three-year-old Jeff McDonald to um, see the Beatles in San Diego. Christ, that is so cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which he kind of remembers. Um so, you know, but that being said, the Beatles were always a big part of my life, um, you know, I, since before I my first memories, you know, uh, you know, and all, the entire catalog, well, the, the entire American catalog, which was a little different than the UK catalog. But um, and you but you mentioned Sgt. Peppers or an uncle that was uh, went to school in Japan 
in the 70s or late 60s. And he brought Jeff and I back. Um, I think it would have been like a Chinese bootleg of Sergeant Pepper's on uh, red clear vinyl. <laughs> and so that's the Sergeant Pepper's I grew up with. Yes. Um, that my uncle had brought back from Japan and uh, on red clear vinyl. But um, so those, you know, it had a huge effect on me. And then, uh, and then I think the one, the, there's a moment I often talk about was a very defining moment. Um, Christmas, I guess it would have been Christmas 1972. Uh, my youngest uncle, my uncle Shane, who's um, about 12 years older than me, he uh, he had an eight track, uh, an eight track cassette, an eight track cartridge um, version of Ziggy Stardust, and my brother and I were really intrigued by it, and mm. wasn't all that interested in. It. And he said, "You guys, you guys want to take that home? You can borrow it if you want." And um, and we took it home, and we never gave it back. <laughs> Crikey! That started this whole pathway of. Jeff brought home Hunky Dory soon after that, which was, as we all know, like the record from the year before, but um, we got it after. And then um, Jeff still talks about when he bought it at the local shopping mall, um, the girl at the little record shop in the shopping mall, the girl behind the counter looked at it and um, she gave this like, you know, um, very... Uh, judgmental gaze and she said are you sure you want this do you know what this is as if he was like trying to buy pornography or something oh my god that's amazing well it's interesting because my first single and then first album was you know david bowie's space oddity and then it was changes one because i you know i had that you know top of the pops moment you you know i saw it on top of the pops and then had to save up some money and buy the single for 70p at the local record shop and i was terribly excited and then played the b-side which had changes and sort of velvet goldmine and uh, and thought god b-sides are stunning obviously yeah. from it was downhill from there on but from the age of a very young age you know i was quite kind of thinking god these b-sides are better than the a-sides and it it, it really was so yes the Bowie one because it was lucky because glam rock had come along and we had you know like the Sweet and Slade and then Gary Glitter which is always a bit tricky and um, you know and it was but for a very young person watching those kind of anthem anthemic songs it was very exciting yeah I mean yeah and I and and I feel really lucky as an American that I got to um, uh, that my brother had such sophisticated taste at such a young age because a lot of the stuff that you were watching on top of the pops never really cracked in America at the time you know even Bowie who did he did come over here in the early 70s and he he played some you know moderate sized venues he didn't become a mainstream artist until a bit later and uh so you know I didn't really have <clears throat> but things like you know T-Rex and Slade and Gary Glitter you know, Jeff was kind of aware of some of that stuff, but it didn't get to make a big impact on me until later. Yes. But, but still, you know, um, you know, I was, I was very well steeped in Bowie, Elton John, and the Beatles and the Stones at, um, from pretty much the very beginning of my life. And then, but then. To get to the question you asked about what started me on the path of it being a career would probably be the moment 
um, a few, a bit, you know, a few years later, around in 1975, or actually it was January 76, um, when I was, like, I guess that makes me eight years old still, because I would have turned nine in 76, of May of 76. So when I was eight, um, Jeff and I went to um, uh, a KISS concert at the, at the Los Angeles Forum, and it was on when they were still on their first Kiss Alive album. So it was before they had really become like, um, before it was age appropriate for us. Yes. Still like a, for teenagers, kind of cool stoner teenagers. And uh, and the LA Forum, we grew up close to this big arena. And it would have been where, it's the arena where the uh, the Lakers played basketball, NBA basketball, or there's hockey there in um Actually, I don't think we had hockey in the 70s yet, but, um, you know, it's a big sports arena and it would be the same place where we'd go to the circus. The the big Barnum and Bailey circus would come once a year. So to my parents, it seemed the venue was only about four miles from our house and it seemed like a, you know, a relatively safe environment to take us to. And they and uh, we went with a few friends from from the from our block and our neighborhood who are a few years older than us. and they just dropped us off at the coffee shop around the corner and they let us go, uh, which is looking back. I, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> but, uh, my God, that's know, amazing. It's a very different scene. I, I you know, I, I, it's, you know, it was definitely my first, uh, uh contact with um, the smell of cannabis. Yes, I know. Yeah. Just in, in, <laughs> those gigs were very smoky and they were, yeah. you know, Smoky, but I guess everything was really smoky in the seventies. But um, but then by but I got I got the sense that it was definitely not tobacco they were smoking. Excellent, that's amazing. So then, did you when you saw that? Because a lot of people often say it was the Ramones or the Sex Pistols doing pretty pretty vacant. Did that that was the, was that the moment you came home and thought, right, I'm gonna I need to do that? Because I know Lemmy suddenly when he was at school saw somebody with a guitar and all these women hanging out with him, or probably small girls, they were at school. And he thought, I'm just going to get a guitar the next day and walk around. And he went, God, this works. It really does. Yeah, I'm, going, right. I'm going to be in a band. That's it. No, <laughs> no, there's no other career for me. Well, that makes, you know, I mean, he's a bit more um, developed in teen- as a teenager in high school. Yeah, no, I mean, it still wasn't still like, oh, this, I'm going to do it. It didn't, it didn't, um, it didn't seem possible yet. I mean, at that point, it just, all I know is that I was in, completely obsessed. I mean, the showmanship, the, 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 the spectacle I had witnessed was all encompassing and it complete, I was completely obsessed. It wasn't until, um, I would say a few years later or maybe the next year, even when, um, when Jeff and I discovered the runaways and that we would have gotten that first runaways album and uh, or maybe even that year sometime between 76 and 77 we got the runaways and we discovered the ramones the ramones had been on a um on a local late night tv show we didn't have something like top of the pops we didn't have a a chart show that happened in um during primetime hours there was um but there were a few um live rock concert shows that would um, come on late at night on Saturday night. And if we could stay up late enough, we would, we would watch Don Kirshner's rock concert. And then there was another show called uh, midnight special. And usually they were kind of filled with 
things that we weren't all that interested in, like BB King or something, or uh, you know, some kind of um, boogie woogie rock and roll, yes. or but uh, but but weird things would come on once in a while, like Cheap Trick, a very early Cheap Trick, or very early Ramones, and um, and I remember and Kiss were on was on in concert as well, or Midnight Special, and uh, and uh, but the Ramones around the time of their first album and that was pretty mind blowing. But so anyways, um, it was the runaways and the Ramones, the runaways because they were, well, I love their music, but also on the back cover of their first album, it gave their ages and they were all 16 and 17. And even though I was only 11 at the time, it at least seemed like somewhere in the, in the range of, of my existence and, and, you know, really kind of excited Jeff and I, this idea of, you know, if they can do this, I mean, shit, why can't we? And then the Ramones, we, we, when we got the first Ramones album, we just became obsessed. And, uh, around that same time, I managed to, um, convince my parents to buy me an electric bass guitar. Um, I had a plot to, uh, to join the school orchestra because there was, um, for some reason there was always a slot for an electric bass guitar in the school orchestra. And there was some kid, sort of like the Lemmy story, some kid at the school had an electric guitar. Well, at my school, there was a kid that had a, an electric Vox bass, a solid body. It wasn't a, uh, oh yes, an electric Vox. It was like a, whatever, an early seventies Vox. And, um, and, um, and, but they had like a stand up bass at the school as well. And so, I, I learned the stand-up enough to know how to play um, the tune "King of the Road." And I played that bass line for my parents, and I I impressed them <laughs> enough that um, it it seemed worth it. It wasn't ludicrous that I was begging them to buy me a, a, a cheap electric bass guitar. And um, and there was a, kind of this plot that my brother and I had brewed up together, and then Jeff was going to get an electric guitar. And he managed to get an electric guitar, like a Stratocaster copy for 50 bucks. And then um, and then after getting into the Ramones, we, we, we learned how to play those songs. Someone taught my brother a bar chord position, like the kid in the neighborhood that was a little bit older and actually had a flying V guitar and learned some Jimmy Page guitar licks. He, you know, Jeff asked him, you know, to teach him a few things. And Jeff learned the 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 power chord, the the standard E position bar chord and the A position bar chord. And uh and that's all we really needed to then learn the entire first Ramones album. And I always tell young uh aspiring guitar players or bass players uh, if you listen to the first Ramones album it's mixed in a way sort of like a live record where all the guitar is only on one side and the bass guitar is only on the other side so if you take the balance knob on your stereo and you turn it to the left well then you can hear just drums guitar and vocals and if you turn to the right it's just bass drums and vocals and depending on what your instrument is, you can fill in the part of the missing uh, member. Yeah. And, that, and that's what we did. On, and we learned that whole first Ramones album. And once we learned the whole first Ramones album, then we just started writing our own songs. 
And that's kind of where it went from there. And that's all that all kind of went down around sometime in 1977. 77, that famous year that punk. Well, well, I suppose the, the first uh, the Damned album came out probably in 76. And that was kind of yeah. them and the Ramones. Well, were... I, well, that's for the UK perspective. But I think the first Ramones album came out in 76. Yes, that's right. It was kind of happening because <laughs> there'd been a lot of kind of these pub bands like the Dr. Feelgood and Brindley Schwartz, who were most on this record label called Stiff Records and they I suppose they were they were a bit older guys but they played a bit of a rock you know quite a raw sort of pub rock kind of sound which you know were never going to appeal to 16 or 18 year old kids but then when the Pistols came along and then the Clash and the Buzzcocks you know that it yeah. just it just had a better image than than sort of probably the you know Dr Feelgood or Nine Below Zero was another band which people loved as well so so when you started to sort of form a band with your brother and various mates did did you sort of have an idea of what it was you were going to try and sound like other than the Ramones um well, we certainly didn't sit down there and plot it out, but we had very strong opinions about what we liked and what we didn't like. And um, and at the time, you know, like you said, you know, my brother had really sophisticated taste. He was like way ahead of his years. We we'd even seen Led Zeppelin at this point, and we saw Led Zeppelin on their last tour of the United States on the um, on their Presence album. But it's funny, like by the time Led Zeppelin, when they came to uh, on that particular tour. They had, you know, Robert Plant had had some tragedy. I think his son died and they kept canceling their tour. There were a couple other reasons. I think there was a car accident and uh, just, I just, I forgot. But, um, uh, but by the time they made it to the United States, between the time we had purchased the tickets and by the time they made it to the United States, we had heard the Ramones. Yes. Which kind of changed everything. <laughs> And I still love Led Zeppelin. I listen to those records now, and I'm I'm amazed by how you know how musical and uh, just all the different elements they were weaving together, and they did it in a really great way, uh, regardless if they were stealing a lot of their songs or not. And uh, and but you know when there were but when the Led Zeppelin I remember when Led Zeppelin showed up, my brother and I we 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 sat in the back of the arena once again at the LA Forum. And, um, well, cause that's the place we could get a ticket. It was literally against the wall, the very top of the building, you know, it's like Wembley arena. It's like 20,000 seats or whatever. And, uh, uh, but we would, we were already kind of snobs. We had our arms crossed. We were pretty much like, this is cool, but I wish it was the Ramones. And, um, and that's the kind of attitude we had, you know, I mean, I think it's part of the, you know, the, the the confidence and arrogance of youth. You've got very strong opinions. You do, and that's uh, and, uh, and also they probably look like old blokes, really. But even though they were probably you know still look like wizards, so you know, I mean, he still. I think Robert. I think Jimmy Page was still rocking his like dragon outfit. I think it was was right before he retired it. Yes. And, uh, so it still looked like song remains the same, or at least that's that's my you know uh, you know it, it it looked it looked pretty vital. Uh, it would have been uh, in seven, early maybe early seventy seven, um, and it was also the year that uh, it's a pretty heavily bootlegged performance. Uh, Keith Moon came out at the end of the concert and, uh, uh, or no, during Moby Dick and jammed, dr did a drum solo with with John Bonham. So it's you know it's pretty. It's there's definitely bragging rights attached to having seen that concert. 
at 10 years old or whatever. But um, but all the same, you know, just on the question of did we know what we wanted to sound like? And I don't know that we necessarily knew what we wanted to sound like, but I know we had very strong opinions about what we were, about what we liked. Yeah. Because even that night, I sort of had my arms folded as crossed as if like, uh, you know, they had to, they had to somehow impress me. <laughs> you know? Ridiculous. And, um, because I had moved on to this new form genre of music. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, but it, also, um, but I think a, a much more, um, straightforward answer would also be to list the, the cover songs we were doing in our first set of songs. So we wrote, a bunch of songs. The songs that were uh, later came out on um, on our first EP, which is will be the 40th anniversary next year of the release of that record. Um, so we had songs like Annette's Got the Hits, I Hate My School, um, and, uh, you know, uh, what are the other songs on that record? <laughs> Standing in front of Poser. And then, um, and then we were doing some cover tunes. We did um, "Who Are the Mystery Girls" by the uh, New York Dolls. I remember, we had uh, the second New York Dolls album, and I was really obsessed with that. Too much, too soon. And we did a, a our own kind of like punky version of um, Beatles. I want to hold your hand, and uh, where we would play the fur, we play the first verse and chorus in Beatles tempo. And then we play the second verse and chorus in a Ramones tempo. <laughs> and um, and were you, know, you, a, I was going to say, and at that stage, were, were you sort of getting kind of um, a buzz from the sound that you were creating? Because I know sort of talking to quite a few people, you know, it does take a little bit of time for a, a sound to start to um, lift off, I suppose, than just sound like all the other bands. So I just wondered if when you started to sort of jam together and rehearse that you started to feel something kind of exciting happening. Um, well, I mean, it definitely, it wasn't like the stories I've read, of, you know, of Led Zeppelin's first um, jam session, because those people were already accomplished musicians, and all it meant was that they were experiencing the chemistry of those four particular musicians together for the first time, you know, and so you're, you're, we didn't have that, but what we did have was, so we weren't accomplished musicians, but we were kind of blown away that it sounded like anything at all, like, uh, had any semblance like the music that we loved, you know, the fact that we could make our way through an entire version of a New York doll song or a Beatles song was pretty mind blowing. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. It's a so funny to the, I haven't really thought about that, but, but yeah, I think that we were really getting off on the sound that we were making, you know, I mean, I'm sure that I was very distracted with wrestling with the mechanics, but soon after, you know, I think we, uh, we, I think we liked what we were doing a lot and, and we definitely, um, had strong opinions about it as well. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, because at that period there was like, as you, as you sort of know, you know, rock journalists like to put things into categories. So you had that sort of punk period and then post-punk period with bands like, you know, Peel, you know, Public Image Limited and Magazine and Gang of Four and Wire. And then, you know, a little bit later on you started getting that kind of more indie sound with bands like The Smiths and The Go-Betweens and I suppose Orange Juice like that. So, so you were sort of creating quite a heavier sound, weren't you? We were creating what? A kind of a much heavier sound. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we were going for, uh, 
I mean, I think the the Ramones and the New York Dolls were kind of like the 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 blueprint for um, what we thought was a punk sound, and the Ramones mostly, and then the Sex Pistols as well. But I mean, I think the Ramones is really we identify with that mostly because I the, also you know part of our heritage is that we grew up in Hawthorne, California, and that's where the the Beach Boys are from along with um, some other 60s uh, um, musicians like Emmett Rhodes from the Merry-Go-Rounds. I always kind of say that uh, uh, the Hawthorne, and now if you include Red Cross, I think of Hawthorne as the, uh, as, uh, the Liverpool of the Pacific. Right. And because uh, it's, it's, near, it's near the ocean. And, uh, and we grew up, we spent our summer days on the beach and beach culture was something we were interested in. One of the first songs you ever wrote was a song called Annette's Got the Hits, and it was a reference to Annette Funicello. And um, and those and Annette Funicello was, of course, the star of the 60s beach movies, those California 60s beach movies that we were watching on reruns um, that they would be on after school, like after the afternoon movie on Channel 7, and it would be like, these 60s beach party movies and uh which were really campy and kind of old-fashioned but we also kind of dug it and they played rock and roll music and sometimes the beach boys were in them i mean when i was a kid the beach boys music to me actually seemed kind of old-fashioned and old fogey and it wasn't really until i was older that i discovered like pet sounds and understood the lineage and the importance that the important contribution that my fellow Hawthornians had made, um, you know, I just was hearing the early Beach Boys stuff and it sounded like 1950s music to me. Uh, But at the same time, um, I think there was just something there because that sensibility made its way into our sound. And there's some kind of lightness, there's a fun, there's an airiness to it. And the Ramones were obsessed with that stuff. And even though they were from New York, which is a totally different vibe and energy as where we were from, they were paying homage to, to um, homage or whatever to the, um, to the sounds of West Coast, you know, mid, early, mid-60s um, Southern California sound. And they were taking it and they were melding it and blending it with other things and making this new thing. And then we picked up on that back on the West coast a few years later. And so it was, you know, so I wouldn't really just say that we had a heavy sound, but, but, you know, we, um, but we definitely, you know, especially compared to the bands that we were soon to interact with, because we played all of our first shows with a, um, a very embryonic, brand new um, Black Flag, who then a few years later would start the Southern California hardcore sound, which was very aggressive. And um, and we always had a poppier side to us. We it's you know, it's really the Beatles and the Ramones always they, they just permanently branded this poppy kind of bouncy fun side uh to us and, and and just really had such an impact that we you know we we wanted we wanted our music to have a bite we we appreciated you know that sort of that sting of the you know Johnny Rotten but at the same time 
we liked it to be fun and we wanted to have a party (laughs) (laughs) and uh so yeah i don't know i i feel like i'm kind of it's come i'm a bit convoluted it's hard to describe but uh those are all the different elements that we were mixing up yes absolutely because by the time you got to team babes yeah. Um, that was that was your EP of covers. So did you, as as with a lot of people, they always love their covers album, you know, like pinups. And you just you must have loved picking those particular tracks, especially the Bowie one, which was from his um, the man. I think it was the man who sold the world, wasn't it? Yeah. The Savior Machine. So which one? Why did you? And, and there was also the the a rather obscure the Rolling Stone one, Citadel as well. Which why did you sort of pick those particular ones? Because that came from their rather. Um, yeah, one of those albums that didn't quite happen there, Satanic Majesty's Request. Yeah. So was that a particular album that you'd all got into by some fluke? Yeah, well, that's around. so this is around 1984. And um, at this point, yeah, so you mentioned post-punk. We'd been through that. We'd, we had gotten into those bands and, um, and that, and, um, and the scene in LA had kind of morphed a lot and eventually, and I mentioned California, Southern California, hardcore, like we came up when we were first playing shows, we were playing shows with black flag around 78, uh, in 79, we did all of our first shows with black flag and right as they were starting to gig and, um, and that's a whole story unto itself. And, um, they weren't known, but then they started getting very popular. Other young people suddenly were getting into this punk rock thing. Because at the time, when we first got into it, everybody that we met at shows were all kind of like in their early 20s. They were kind of like arts, uh, art school students or um, leftovers from the glam rock era, glitter rock era. And, um, and it was not our peer group. Um, but then a few years later, our peer group got into it and they were just really into this sort of image of um, what well, which was being talked about in the newspapers here was that uh, it was very violent. It was a very violent scene and it, this hardcore music and it was kind of monotone. It was kind of devoid of any kind of melody and just really, really fast. And it was more like a kind of like a contact sport going to a show. It wasn't really about, it wasn't any kind of form of artistic expression that I could relate to. So Jeff and I found ourselves digging back into the past more being alienated by our peer group once again. And we were digging into the obscure past and we would do that by going to uh, charity shops, like thr- we call them thrift stores here. Yeah. And, We'd go to the thrift shops and we'd be looking through the record bins and, uh, you know, record bins now that record collectors would, you know, you know, you know, you know, whatever, give, give up, give, uh, you know, maybe sell their, uh, their, their, their baby toe over <laughs> their pinky toe, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and we were finding all these great, uh, 60s, obscure 60s records, uh, so of course things like Satanic Majesties pops up. That that would have been not very obscure by the Rolling Stones. At least might have been one of their l- less popular albums, but definitely a known group. But then we were also finding records by L.A. Uh, you know Sunset uh, Strip scene bands from the mid '60s like Love, Arthur Lean Love, and um, Sky Saxon and the Seeds. And we were discovering those records at the same time too. 
and being blown away by what had kind of just taken place. Yes. About 20 years earlier in those same areas. And, um, and so when we made our covers record, you know, you mentioned everyone's kind of makes their cover records at that time. No one else had really made a though. I, for, for us, it really was Bowie pinups that had been, and that was kind of an obscure Bowie record too. You know, I mean, I, uh, at least in America and, um, and, and my brother kind of had this idea that he wanted to kind of give all the punker hardcore skinhead kids, uh, um, because we were still playing shows with those bands, not that we related to those hardcore bands, but they were we were a weird band ourselves, and we didn't really make sense on bills with any other kind of group. So my brother decided he wanted to give those kids that were uh, into that music um, a sort of a history lesson or a, 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 a class in um, the history of rock and roll, or as we saw it, yes. what we thought was good. And... Uh, so in there we did, uh, yeah, so we did, so we did the Citadel, the second track on such satanic majesties. It's one of the most rocking tracks on the album. So it makes sense. We did that one. Um, we did, we did, uh, kiss deuce and at 1983, kiss were at the very bottom of their, they were scraping the bottom of the barrel as they say. <laughs> Yes. They were, I think they were still wearing makeup. They hadn't taken the makeup off yet, but their popularity was in um, severe decline. And um, really no one was, no one was, uh, no one of any integrity was waving their banner. Um, but we were. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, and did you also, because the one thing that I, I sort of, about the 80s, which is quite sort of, I remember at the time, there was, like, especially in the UK, there was like two different sounds. There was that Trevor Horn sort of production, which was like Frankie Goes to Hollywood and ABC and Dire Straits. It really metallic, metallic kind of sound, very sort of heavy drum, which was, you know, like a drum machine. And then you had that kind of more indie sound and, and you know, bands like the Smiths really epitomised that. So were you kind of aware of who you were trying to sort of sound like or were you thinking you know like chasing chasing fashions because obviously in that period there were certain artists who had been big before during the 80s who when they got to the you know had been big in the 70s and even the 60s and when they got to the 80s they were a bit lost and David Bowie was one because his kind of albums during that part time were a bit hit and miss and Robert Plant was also another one and Rod Stewart so all these kind of people who were a little bit sort of they weren't sure what they wanted to sound like and who they really wanted to be so they were chasing a slightly mainstream MTV sort of world and then you had these kind of like you know Morrissey with his gladioli and all that kind of stuff so did were you sort of aware where are those kind of changing kind of sounds as well in the in the production studio? Well, and you know, in America, you, you know, like you described what was going on in popular music and the UK at the time. You're talking about you either had this sort of slick dance music or you had the, the sort of uh, indie, which was the indie rock music, which was the 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 rawer of the two sounds and. Um, but in America, you know, it was like those neither. I mean, I'd say a lot of that, a lot of that slick dance music made its way and broke in America. But, you know, um, the indie music would have been more, um, would have been not mainstream, maybe popular in the States, but not necessarily mainstream. But then also, um, you know, 
America is just so big <laughs> and it's so it's so spread out and like before the internet, you know, it's so disconnected from each other. What West what West Coast culture was like and the difference between West Coast and East Coast were even more extreme back then. We were so less connected and you would find yourself more just interested for people like us, at least, that weren't weekend listeners, people that were so deeply dedicated to music. We were more just interested in our little subculture, our little world that we were in, in Southern California. And we would have been <clears throat> comparing ourselves <coughs> to other local bands and competing with other local bands. But but our reaction was just to reject all of it altogether. We rejected mainstream and we also rejected our peer group and we just got into the history of rock and roll. Yes. And and that's what Team Babes was about. We weren't we were we, we weren't even considering how to break through to a larger audience. Um, in terms of whether or not we were going to try to get a song that would get us an agent that could then get us book us a tour of you know because you that maybe would then land us a spot a spot on a on a chart show like that all might have seemed obtainable to a sixteen year old British kid but to us n not at all <laughs> you know <laughs> to us it would have been more like if you know. Um, Around 1984, I mean, like, I don't know. We were doing shows. I mean, we were playing shows. We had we'd established ourselves as a band that could that could book gigs, and we would get um, asked by the local promoters often to be um, main support for a bigger international touring band. Um, you know, I don't know a band like Lords of the New Church, for instance. You know, featuring Brian James of the Damned and Steve Baders, like kind of gothy group um you know we opened for them a couple of times you know and not that i was ever a big fan of theirs but we were we were considered a popular band that a popular enough where we might bring a few extra heads into the venue of course we would get to the gig and be treated by total like total garbage by lords of the new church you know um you know very hungover road crew <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, well it's interesting yeah. because 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 having done you know a lot of interviews of bands during especially that kind of decade and a bit beyond you know they normally have a five-year narrative you know they would get together they'd spend 12 months kind of playing you know make a single john peel if it was kind of a bit quirky and odd john peel this dj would play it and then they'd get a john peel session that first album things were generally quite good the then there would be this problem and it was the second album but also and it was interesting you mentioned it but anybody and me need literally like 100% if anybody ever toured America from the UK they I, I knew what they would say it's like we went to America and we came back and then we split because you know they just destroyed them so it's interesting that yeah but and you asked why I destroyed them I mean it wasn't just that they drank too many pints what happened was they realized uh, that it's so massive and they felt completely anonymous and they probably thought how the hell do we try to make a mark in this environment you know and also the idea that if in the uk one way to be 
um, to cement your your success in the UK was to go to America and conquer it. You're going to go to America and realize this is not the quick, this is not the fast track to success. <laughs> well. In fact, no. it's ten times harder. Yes, I, I think part of it was the 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 touring, but it was also doing the press. You know, having to sort of drive hours, go onto a radio station for thirty seconds, say hi, and then get back, and then drive another six hours, get to the gig. Sure, yeah. There's a geography. It's like you know, I'm like, I'm just now. We're about to do a UK tour. It's our first like headlining UK tour in 23 years. I mean, I've done many in the in the interim but Red Cross has not done a headlining tour. And my dad, my 80-year-old dad, wants to come out. And it's really cool. We sat down and looked at the map yesterday. And he's going to come out just for the UK portion because we're doing a whole European tour. And um, and I was thinking, oh, Brighton to Manchester, that's got to be a long one, <laughs> thinking, thinking it's like, you know, L.A. to San Francisco or something. Because I'm going to rent a car when my dad comes out. And we're going to you know, maybe go off the beaten path, get off the motorway and, and hit some um, smaller highways and go do some sightseeing. And uh, and I, when I do the math, aside from having to get on the M25, which I know is a horrible traffic jam always, but um, I'm looking at, oh, it's 200 miles. That's a four drive. It's no big deal. <laughs> like, what's the big deal, you know? And uh, And that's what, I mean, aside from, you know, some traffic jams, because it can get pretty congested in the UK, but... Uh, uh, you know, I, you know, I can see that would be, especially in the American West, once you get West of the, the Mississippi river, um, which is half of the country, <laughs> the drives get really long and yeah, you know, I mean like that story about the, uh, the, the sex pistols. I mean, I almost think that Malcolm McLaren purposely booked that tour in a way that would see to it that they were, um, that would destroy them you know their first gig was in san antonio texas like what the fuck <laughs> is that total like you know especially in 1977 like very close-minded backwards kind of culturally environment just like yeah long ass drives although i think they flew mostly or sorry some of them flew some of them didn't i don't know but uh you know i mean yeah I think it would have been very, very humbling uh, on many levels for the for the British artists to come here and and try to uh, try to make it in the seventies. Yes, <clears throat> well, actually, so few did because of the following decade you had all that kind of stuff with Blur, Oasis, and it probably swayed and I don't and, and Pulp and I don't think any of them really made any indent. I mean, there was probably a, a cult following because someone's going to like that music because it's, it's, some of it is amazing. But, um, you know, again, it's like you're not going to be, you're not going to be Tina Turner or Gloria Estefan. You're not going to sell billions, are you? You're just going to just be kind of Norman Nomates, really. Well, with, with British music, I think British had, the British music in the mid-80s, they had a second British invasion with things like um, Duran Duran and, uh, and, you know, a, a lot of the like ABC and Frankie goes, Hollywood. yeah, like, is that Trevor Horn? Is that what you said? Is that, yeah. Who produced who produced um, uh, Duran Duran? I don't know. I don't think it was actually Trevor Horn on that production. But I yes, it was. Um, it must have been someone who was very. The, a I name, mean, you know, it must have been a producer, especially the Rio album, because it was such a sort of an iconic kind of album. It had all the hits on and everyone absolutely yeah. loved it. And, I think they were kind of a self-contained band, though. I mean, they kind of they kind of took over. They were kind of like the new Beatles for a little bit there. And I think when listening back to those records, I'm kind of like, 
I get why they were actually a really good band. And, and then also a culture club were the other band. I mean, this is when I was in high school. These are my high school years. I graduated in 85. So, you know, I wasn't a fan of that music. It was mainstream and I was kind of like had folded arms and I was bitter and pissed about it. But looking back, I can hear, I, I get why that stuff broke in America. I think it was actually, a lot of it was actually really strong, with strong songwriting and good performances, you know, yes. especially Duran Duran in particular. But um, but then by the 90s with the Britpop movement, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe the music was a little too clever, a little too smart, a little too British, you know? I mean, um, I mean, you know, you listen to... Um, Duran Duran, they're singing with American accents, just like the Beatles did. Yes, <laughs> well, I, I think that I think that was a really big thing that in in the Britpop, they really wanted that identity, the British London identity, and sure, and sure. so they, 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 were, they were sort of referencing the Kinks and exactly. and being very very sort of the geographically never in the states like the Beatles and the Stones did. You know, yes, this is true. Well, I mean, you were great, and I love them. And they actually later in the seventies had an arena rock era, and they really should get back together. Um, as a, as a brother team, I, <laughs> Ray or Dave, if you're listening, this is my advice. You're not getting any younger. You really should do it. You should get <laughs> together. But, yes. Um, well, absolutely. Yes. This is, this is. <laughs> but yeah, you, like I love of of those bands. I would. Um, I I liked all those bands. I think I liked Oasis the, of the Britpop bands. I liked Oasis the least, and it's probably really just because their interviews just seem so arrogant, and I never didn't really get the sense that either of those guys were all that intelligent <laughs> they were more like thugs which i don't identify with yes i i and, kind of yes i couldn't quite get the thing so look one of them you know because actually the one you know like i said most people have their five years in music and then things go terribly wrong whereas the longevity you know like the smiths were a classic one but most bands have five years whereas you managed to sort of navigate past that kind of period and not even just do two albums but absolutely loads so how what was the sort of secret to the success of of you know especially you know red cross well i don't know if it, success might not be the right word although we we did have a few ups we had a few up moments along with the downs but um i would say longevity is more the word and which is a, which is a form of success on its own but um uh well you know we're brothers so there's a sibling thing i we weren't the most prolific so I can't say that we um, produce a huge body of work, you know. So maybe that's part of it. Uh, don't uh, you know? Don't be too productive because you'll get too disappointed with uh, with uh, um, with uh, not meeting expectations. <laughs> but you know, we whatever. We made silver records. We 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 our first run. We did. We went twenty years basically from around. I would say around. From 1978 was around our first rehearsals. Maybe, yeah, I think 78 was our first band rehearsals. And then by 1997 is when we, at the end of 97, we decided to go on hiatus. Yes, absolutely. But, but before that, I just I have to ask you this, because one of the, the best compilations I've ever come across was, and everyone must mention this, If I Were a Carpenter. And you did an oh, amazing, yes. amazing version of Yesterday Once More. So, yes, tell us a little bit more about how that project and how you came to choose that particular song came, you know. Came into well, I don't think we chose that song. I think the first song we chose was Superstar. And they were like, Sonic Youth already have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the producer was um, 
Matt Wallace, I think is I'm, I, I know him. I'm having a brain freeze. I think it's Matt Wallace who had also worked with um, Faith No More, who we had known. And um, I think we were asked to do yesterday once more because we were thought of as a band that was really interested in um, you know uh, music of the past, and they thought that that was um, fitting. I love the whole Carpenters catalog though, and so I was down to do any of it. Um, and uh, I, the way we got asked to do it was, um, you know, we were just kind of, we were, we were really kind of at our, uh, the height of our powers as a band in our twenties, and um, and it just was the right time for us to be included. Um, maybe Sonic Youth might have suggested us. Maybe it was because we were managed by the same people that Sonic Youth were managed by. Um, or maybe the producer, Matt Wallace, just liked us. Yes. Um, but we had been asked to participate. I know. And the one thing I loved, because I, I always felt that the, the lyrics of The Carpenters, and that was one of those albums my parents had, and I, alongside you know those records like uh, Sgt. Pepper and also um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And I was a bit obsessed about the lyrics. As a very young person, I was really like, God, these lyrics are extraordinary. And then years later, enjoying Joy Division and The Smiths and thinking, well, actually, the lyric content is exactly the same as Karen and Richard Carpenter here you know they they are just so beautifully sort of crafted songs that are so sort of emotional it's um it's tear-jerking yeah yeah Um, but there's a melancholy about Karen a tragedy really (laughs) well sure a tragedy but I mean uh well definitely a tragedy because she was so gifted and um she couldn't see that um or she couldn't accept it and it's really that's very tragic um, and uh, maybe the environment in which she was grew up in, and that the time and place just all was just a perfect storm for the for the tragedy that happened to Karen. But um, uh, but I'm sorry, what was your question about the lyrical content? Yeah, so so actually putting that song together, and I was just saying that whole album of, of that co- a compilation of yep. uh, different bands. I just thought really was one of the best ones I've ever heard. You know, I don't think there's ever been. Uh, you know, just thinking on my feet here, all sitting down. But you know, it's 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 just a, an amazing piece of work from start to finish. I don't think there's one kind of duff tracks on it. And I, I just wondered how quickly it took to record that your oh, your, your track that you put on it. Pretty quickly. I mean, uh, Matt Wallace. We rehearsed the song probably for a, a week, like because it's back in the days when a. I mean, maybe this still happens. Maybe it's the the advantage of youth or something. But. Uh, Nowadays, I feel like every time I record a song, it, it's a it's a studio project. You you get a click track going, and then you lay down a track, and then you pass it to a friend, and they lay down a part. But back then, we would all get into the room and the rehearsal room as a band, and we would work on the song for a while. And so that's what we did with that song. We got into the room as a band, and we worked on it for a while. And then the producer came down, and he actually had some good ideas. That's the one time we kind of worked with like a a producer, producer, and. Uh, I remember he helped, he came up with the modulation at the end of the song and the way we did the modulation. Or we might have we were a fan of a modulation always, you know, where you go up a step and um and get this sort of burst of it. It gives you an emotional boost. Uh but then uh, he kind of came up with how we did that modulation. I remember him coming up with that. And then when we recorded it, uh probably did the basic tracks in just one day. Um, Jeff might have gone in and done the vocals on the next day, and then they probably mixed it on the third day. 
Um, and then the only other comment I would make about that record being a strong compilation album is that it's, you know, I think more than anything, more than any of the performances, I think it's um, a testament to um, the power of great songs. And they're just, you know, such good songs. Yes. And you know, such good songs that, um, you know, even if you kind of steered away from the way that Carpenters did it, um, they even if they didn't write the song also, like in the case of the song Superstar, that Leon Russell wrote, um, you know, they curated it for their own catalog. Like they chose those songs and they, you know, they just had a really good sense about those kinds of things. So, so all that hard work was done years before Matt Wallace ever got involved. Um, I think Richard and Karen, what they did with the Carpenters is that they obviously laid the groundwork for why those interpretations in the nineties still worked. Yes. Uh, but then also I would just, but, but not to dismiss the contribution of the producer. He did. I think he did a great, he did a great job. Yeah, absolutely. Too. Cause one, the other thing that sort of knocked a lot of bands out that I've, I've done of that period is that, you know, the, the sort of 83 to 87, you know, which I think of as the, the really indie years. And that was also the years of the Smiths. But then one, yep. one thing that knocked a lot of bands out was the dance scene that came along, you know, and people taking an ecstasy and wanted to suddenly have that kind of stone roses, soup dragons, uh, the happy yep. Mondays. And then if that didn't knock a lot of those early bands out, you know, the grunge kind of the Pixies, Sonic Youth and all all those bands definitely wiped out bands. So, so there was a, you know, I think a lot of uh, artists and musicians just just couldn't survive different trends. But you managed to sort of sail through all of those, didn't you? <laughs> Which was quite remarkable because it was. Well, we, never, we never really gave. We never really like took a swan dive into any one trend. You know, we always kind of did our own thing, and for whatever reason, we were always kind of accepted enough to be. Uh, we would be, um, we were allowed to be adjacent to an environment, but we were never full-fledged card-carrying members of any one movement. Yes, which is probably very lucky because I, I think that's that's the thing that you know, with any band, even you know, like the main players, I think they they it's difficult for them to really say, yeah. right, I want to do I want to do my David Bowie low album. It's like no, you can't do David Bowie low. You're not you you got to stick to what you were you know you've basically created, and you know we're not going to let you change. So you're going to have to split up basically. Sure. Or you know a lot of times people like shop, um, jump from genre to genre. I think we kind of what we a lot of times people perceive it as genre hopping to achieve commercial acceptance or a wider audience and. Um, and that always feels somehow insincere. Rarely can a band survive that kind of jump. Um, and, you know, but for us, you know, I, I, for whatever reason, we, we neither, um, you know, I think that we just, we were always sort of allowed to participate, play alongside other bands. I think we got, we, 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 somehow deemed a certain amount of credibility at an early age. Maybe it's, you know, our first set of gigs were with Black Flag. People still write books about, our people are writing books now about that era. And um, this weird little enclave of weirdo bands, the SST had put together. And, um, and then just, you know, but then throughout the years, we would play with all different kinds of groups. You know, we we played with Sonic Youth, but we also did gigs with 
you know, some horrible glam rock bands like Poison. <laughs> we actually only did that once, and then we never we learned never to do that again. Yes. And, uh, and um, but all sorts of different scenes, and um, you know, I don't know. You know, I mean, I guess on one side, if you kind of strike it, if you 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 hit a nerve within some a, cer a certain genre, you might get a big boost in your popularity, but then as soon as that genre starts to um, run its course, which I know in the UK that happens really, historically speaking, that's always happens pretty fast. The cycles run fast. Um, then as soon as that genre starts to run its course, well, then you kind of have to go with it. Yes. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I guess that would be one of the, 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 the keys to our... Um, you know, our, our longevity, but you know, there are a few examples though. I think of, um, brother team also from Los Angeles that everyone outside of the UK thinks of as English <laughs> is the band sparks. Oh and yes. God. Yes, absolutely. It, who I, I actually played bass for sparks for five years and from 2004 to 2009. And, um, so I've learned a bit about their history and I, I played in their band when they did their 21 albums and 21 nights um, thing they did in London um, where they played all their albums one at a time um, at the Islington Academy. And then on the very last night, we played their newest album, which at the time was called Exotic Creatures of the Deep. And then we played that at the um, at the uh, Shepherd's Bush Empire. Um I didn't play all the albums. I only played on like about 13 of the albums, but I lived in London for a while and I, and I got a serious um, history lesson in their story. And they are this weird anomaly. They're a band who have had mainstream success a little, you know, they've had brushes with it in the UK and in Europe. Now, never really so in the, well, a little bit so in the U S around the mid eighties. Um, but they have done a lot of what you could say genre hopping. Um, but I think them, the only other artist I can think of is sort of like Beck too. I think for them, the motivation has always really been that they are somehow intrigued and, and interested on an artistic level in a different style. And they always want to collaborate with that style. Yeah. And, and they've found a way to um, put their songwriting style in a different framework over and over and um, without it losing integrity, without the band losing its integrity and its connection with its core audience. And that is a, a, a very uh, mysterious practice and very few can do it. Bowie did it often with success, uh, creative success. I can't really speak to commercial success i don't i don't really know about that part of it so much but uh back i think has done it creatively successfully many times you know but uh you know and it's still always a question like are they doing that just trying to get a hit song i don't know you know <laughs> who, knows, who knows what the motives are you know it doesn't matter the yeah the point is do you like it or not is yes. it connecting with you and you know, and I'd have to say, you know, even as someone that's been a bit of a rock and roll purist, um, 
so yeah, of course, some of that was challenging for me. When I listened to Sparks records that we were working on and we would get on something they did in the mid 80s or something, somewhere after their Giorgio Moroder period, which at the time, the Giorgio Moroder period, I would have not liked when I was a kid. Uh, I would have, I didn't like dance music. I, I felt like it was the, the other side's music. <laughs> but, um, uh, and what was behind it, I'm not sure. People write, you know, articles now about how that's some kind of institutionalized homophobia or institutionalized racism too. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not enough of a sociologist to, to talk about that. But um, I know that I'm, I know that I'm an open-minded person though about human beings. So I'll say that much, but um, at any rate, so, uh, you know, so, but, you know, but I remember it was challenging working on the Sparks songs and, and, uh, and it took me a while to hear the song, hear the Sparks song underneath a tune like, when do I get to sing my way? I would just get so distracted, but this sounds like the Pet Shop Boys. This <laughs> sounds like the fucking Pet Shop Boys as I was playing along with it. And um, it would be weird to me. And now I'm like, oh, well, who cares if it sounds like the Pet Shop Boys? You can still hear, you can listen to those lyrics you know, listen to how smart those fucking lyrics are, you know? Yes, and, absolutely. I mean, it, it, yes, it's, it, I mean, actually, that song that you mentioned, then, When Do I Get to Sing My Way, is, is, is an absolute classic, actually. And, um, yeah, and I do remember being slightly confused and disturbed by them I mean, as a young child in the 70s, because he obviously had the Hitler moustache, which, you know, was still not a cool thing <laughs> and probably still isn't a cool thing. I mean, you know, how did one person make one fashion moustache or any fashion thing just own it so much is quite extraordinary really but there you go that's the power of yeah. dictatorships but look going back to that next period well not next period but you know as you trund as we trundle through the 90s you had show world which was kind of it was a big number wasn't it there was a lot of people working on that for an album that was sort of from a band who had been going for a long time and it was also your fifth album I mean did you at that time feel that this was going to be make or break? Uh, well, I probably did, which I don't think I should have. <laughs> but, um, it was the first time we, after all those years, it was the first time we had made an al uh, a second album for the same company, and um, which was sad. And I think it was more like our sixth album, actually. If you counted um, Teen Babes as a full album, right, we had. Yeah. But at any rate... Um, you know, I mean, and then you would have a different perspective on that record than people here in the States, because in 1992, we went to the UK and kind of started over our career because we, in 1990, we had put out an album called Third Eye in the States and on, on Atlantic Records, and we were on and off the label and within a year's time, and it was considered a, a commercial failure. And so... We went to the UK, which we, Jeff and I always wanted to do anyways, but we had never been given that opportunity. But we really, but from the business perspective, the reason people were investing in us, they thought, well, let's try the British music industry and let's see if they can um, crack over there. And um, and then maybe we'll try, maybe we'll create a story for them over there and then import it back to the US. And so we were on a, we were on an English label 
um, we were on a little label that was part of a bigger. We were on the thing called This Way Up, and it was part of um, Polygram. And um, so, you know, um, I think, uh, yeah, we felt enormous pressure for it to be a success, but I don't think that we um, we didn't alter our sound in a way to try to um, in a way to try to strike a chord with a larger audience. Like once again, I don't think we even knew how to do that. You know, we never really had a producer that was going to come in the studio with a heavy hand and um, try to mold and shape the net, you know, us to sound like the current big sound or to create the next big sound. I think people always just kind of thought these guys are kind of, you know, for the for starters, there's a brothers there. So there's this insulation, built in insulation. You can't ever really get in there with brothers there. They, they speak their own secret language. And and then they're also always going to be in their own strife, their own challenged conversation. It's going to be it's confusing. You know, there's there's, you know, so there was never any. You couldn't say that that record was an obvious attempt at mainstream popularity. It also was a weird time in popular music. 1997, post-grunge. Yes. I don't even know. The the rise of Nickelback. It's like, (laughs) what was going on then? I don't know. You know? Um, You know, we, we didn't really feel... I remember it was easy to to feel that futility, you know, which is terrible. It's a horrible feeling and to let yourself fall into it. In the studio, I think I really kind of tried to push that aside, but I know that we did a lot of fretting making that record and we actually kind of, we had a false start. We started the record. I think the closest thing we did, let me go back a minute. The closest thing I did to try to find, um, see how we could intersect with a larger audience was our first attempt at working with a producer for that record. And we had toured the world on the record that before phase shifter with the band stone temple pilots. And, and it was kind of sad for us because we always wanted to play with Nirvana. We had the same manager. In fact, we had him before Nirvana did. And, um, but once he got Nirvana Six months later, Nevermind came out. I couldn't get him on the phone anymore. <laughs> and not only could we not get the attention of our manager anymore, who we should have just fired, but we didn't understand and we didn't have the confidence to do, um, we couldn't do a gig with Nirvana. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they would never let us play with them for whatever their political reasons were. And then we got lots of different stories about that. Um, and it was really, really, um, I mean, I might sound entitled now, but at the time it made total sense. Like we preceded all those bands by many years and we were, um, had actually turned a lot of people on to cool music up, up in Seattle when we went up there around 85 and 87 and talking to the Melvins guys who I play with now, they, they build a really strong case for this point I'm trying to make right now who are from that area. And, um, So this band, Stone Temple Pilots, who I think actually wrote great songs, but had no credibility whatsoever. Everyone wrote them off, whoever everyone is. But uh, everyone wrote them off as having um, just being like, you know, Pearl Jam, Nirvana ripoff band. And um, 
they asked us to go on tour and maybe they really liked this or maybe they were just looking to get a little bit of hoping a little bit of our cred or whatever would rub off on them. But they were kind enough to take us on the world tour. We went we went all over the U.S., played in you know large arenas. And then they took us to the U.K. and Europe where they weren't as big yet. But um, we got to play much bigger halls than we would have. And during that time, I became a fan of a lot of their songs. And and the bass player is a great bass player, Robert DeLeo. And I thought, and I knew that he had written a bunch of their riffs. And I thought, hey, we should work with this guy. <laughs> and uh, so we went into the studio and made a go of, um, of, of trying to make a record with Robert DeLeo. And... Um, and it didn't work, unfortunately. And really what I should have done was I should have just ask them if they wanted to write a couple songs with us. Um, but so we went in the studio. My brother did not dig the vibe in the studio. And he eventually made me fire him, which was a really <laughs> weird scene. It was horrible. And, uh, and so the record had this false start and it was really painful. <laughs> and and then we went back and we started again. And, you know, and back then you'd spend a lot of money in the studio. And so we kind of have this lost album from during the making of Showworld that my brother has renamed Black Shampoo. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, yeah, it was that difficult thing where you would make you take an album and you would write way more songs than you needed and you recorded way more songs than you needed to. And it was because you were worried that if this doesn't happen, then you're getting dropped. And then if you get dropped, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, and I was the guy that always put the band back together. Also, um, I would put out the, you know, back then you'd have to put in ads in the classifieds in the paper. And I would look, look for, you know, I audition drummers and all that crap. And it was really, uh, unpleasant. But, um, you know, so that record, I do have a lot of um, uh, emotional, there still is a lot of emotional dissonance attached to that record. Um, but uh, but only in recent years I've been able to listen to it and go, you know what, it's just a, it's just a good collection of pop songs and it's a cool record and um, I stand behind it. Um, I just was really depressed at the time because it was also, I was hitting 30 and it's crazy, but my life has been such that at 30, I had been doing my career for almost 20 years, which I think is pretty rare for people. And um, so I felt prematurely a bit burned out and a bit like I need to make a more conservative choice at this point. And so I chose after that record to take a hiatus and I went to school and I didn't study business or anything. <laughs> Maybe I should have. I studied music. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I did that because I wanted to learn the mechanics of music more, not to learn the rules to abide by them, but just to learn the language uh, for the, and just in the terms of like, maybe I'll be a producer. Yes. And I'll be able to work with that many different kinds of people in the future. I'll be able to speak that many different languages. So if someone, if I need someone to play in a, you know, a diminished chord or an augmented chord, I'll be able to describe it and talk about it in those terms. Because I already know how to talk about it in caveman terms, like booga chaka chaka booga, <laughs> <laughs> like most rock musicians. And that's cool. I like doing that too. But um, 
but I can also talk about um, the third and the fifth of the chord and the ninth of the chord or whatever, and I can do that now too. My God, absolutely. Because, I mean, you know, I mean, this is slightly skipping it, but I mean, the band stopped, then it sort of came back together at sort of like 06 time, which must have, did that feel quite a, an emotional moment when, when you sort of had a, a decade off and then and then sort of revved it back up again with, with, you know, with your brother and obviously various other people? Yeah, I mean, I'd say with me, I don't even know. Maybe I just need to go on um, some kind of, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, antidepressants or something, but everything's an emotional moment for me <laughs> still. Well, let's put it this way. I'm most likely, I'm the person most likely in the band to have a sentimental uh, tear hit my cheek <laughs> quite easily. And uh, so, yeah, you know, it was a very emotional moment for me. And, um, uh, you know, it's crazy the, the this experience, you know, and it, and it's it's one that I'm very grateful for. I mean, I don't want to give the wrong impression with the statement I just made about uh, balancing my mood through chemistry, and not that I have any judgment for anybody that does that. Uh, it's just it is a very emotional thing, you know, taking uh, some taking your art and commodifying it and then performing it before people and trying to make some kind of invisible connection, an emotional connection with people um, and accomplishing that sometimes it's and sometimes not feeling like you did or sometimes you learn later that night you thought you didn't, you changed someone's life, you know, and uh, there's all sorts of variables in this thing. And um, so it is emotional. Yeah. And um and that night was too. And, um, you know, uh, and it's, but it's, you know, whatever it's, it's, it's the ride that I'm on. And I'm, you know, I think as I get older, I learn a little bit. I think what I'm talking about now, maybe be an example of some wisdom I've put together. And these are the ways that I cope with it. Yes. I understand like, oh, that's just your insides and that's going to change. So, 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 so don't make a big decision based on it right now. Yeah. And also, I mean, obviously one can't sort of go without mentioning the fact that you, you mentioned them earlier, but you, you sort of then join the Melvins, which, which did that feel quite sort of, you know, did you think, oh, this is really strange. I'm now a member of the Melvins. Yeah. Yo, it's been totally challenging at times. There's been times of it, where I was like, this is not who I am. I can't be doing this. And, you know, the sound of it, um, the audience, the um, the sentiment behind the lyric, a lot of things, you know, have been, you know, because um, when I dive into something, I really try to do a swan dive. I try to make it, I try to do the best possible job I can. And, um, and then they had such a, a, a strong, a way of doing things, a very uh, deeply uh, uh, just uh, they've been doing their thing for so long that to the, their culture, the culture of their group, the way the likes and dislikes and the way they do things at times felt very foreign. And um, and and granted, I mean, I'm saying I'm saying that this to you candidly at times it had been challenging to my sense of self. Um it didn't mean that we were fighting all the time. It didn't mean that there was a lot of strife or anything like that. It was my own private challenge. Um, but what I've learned is that, um, you know, 
that I don't have to be, as I get older, I don't have to be so protective of my identity and who I am and what I think I can do and what I can't do, because um, I'm a little bit more confident than that now. And I know that, uh, <clears throat> you know, to participate in something that's foreign to me doesn't mean that it's wrong or that it's not who I am. It's just, I don't know much about it and I need some to investigate more and I need to figure out what parts of it work for me and what parts of it don't. And maybe I have something, maybe I have some, some interesting insights to bring to that environment too. And I can help shape it from this point on as well. Also, you know, who knows, but, um, you know, uh, but yeah, definitely. But I think, you know, with the Melvin, <clears throat> that experience has brought so much more good than negative that it's, you know, yeah, it's impossible to read. The, the pros and the cons don't really make any, there's no point in making a list. No, absolutely. I'm just, you know, it's just like your stamina is, is extraordinary because last year you had an album out with the Melvins. This year you've got an album out beyond the, beyond the door, which that that's a lot of output just to keep everything, you know, to keep the gig on the road. Is Well, also I, I recorded, well, I recorded beyond the door and, uh, and then I toured with both bands around the world. And I, and, you know, we just did a 54 date tour of the States with Red Cross and Melvins where I did double duties. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's definitely the most productive time in my life. And, um, I didn't expect that. Yes. And, you know, and during my hiatus, I did other, I had other jobs and stuff, pretty much always within music. But a lot of times they were more on the business side. Yes. And, um, you know, so it's been quite a ride. But um, but to be here now at 52 and to be on the, the, the precipice of my most productive, and I, I hope uh, to be not in the precipice, I'm in the middle of my most productive, and I'm hoping the precipice of my most um, artistic time of my life is exciting and it's very motivating and um, it's a, an interesting ride. And coming on to... Uh, you know, the end of the year and, you know, time to reflect on your year and time to look into to the future for the next year. And I guess we call that like the resolutions. Yes. I'm excited. I'm excited about 2020. I'm excited about um, looking at my life, living my life the best I can as well I can. And hopefully that will um, make its way into all the different uh, aspects of what I do. Excellent. And just lastly, I mean, what, what, what's your sort of immediate planning for the next year, decade, 2020? That's a weird oh, thought. Oh, you mean the next decade? Well, yeah, I, well, no, not just the whole decade, but just the, you know, when we wake up on the 1st of January, I just wonder what your, what your calendar is looking like for that particular year. 2020. Well, so far in 2020, I mean, so far, I, I mean, I have a tour booked for, the, like I said, I've got UK, Europe. Um, it's April. Uh, it's all of April and into May in Europe and the UK. And that's just Red Cross doing a, um, a headlining tour. That'll be our first in 23 years. We've been, we've done a little, a week tour here, two weeks there. Uh, only the UK, we've only done an opening tour or we've done a few London gigs. Um, since we've reunited, but this will be the first time as a headlining effort. And um, so I guess my point is that I'd like to do a lot more Red Cross stuff coming up. And um, so I know that, I know that much. I want us to go, um, I want us to uh, 
do some more US and maybe I'd, I'd love it if we can find a way to Japan and Australia, that would be great. But who knows, that's always a bit harder. Um, and then, um, yeah, I want to, I mean, the Melvins, I plan on diving more into that and then producing, just producing more music. And also I would like to be doing more music for film and television. My wife does, um, she scores TV shows and we've kind of always have done that stuff, especially during the hiatus of Red Cross. Um, we would, we would, uh, cause we both make music at our house and, uh, we we both have had you know some some success here and there landing different things and um so you know i i i i'm just planning on doing more and more and just be open to whatever wherever the direction those things take me but um but yes i would like red cross to be uh, i'd like them to make as good of a big of a mark as they possibly can during my lifetime that's correct I can say that without a without hesitation. No, that's good. And just and just really lastly, what would you say to a, your eighteen year old self or an eighteen year old starting out? Just you know that moment you think, oh, this would be a really would have been a really good sort of bit of advice from somebody who's been there and done it, which I didn't know at the time. Oh, geez, how to put it? I'm obviously, as you can tell, in this hour and twenty two minutes, I'm not all that great. <laughs> And reducing it to its uh, atomic level, <laughs> but um, oh, you know, I uh, piece of advice. I, 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 you know, I, I just think that um, I just think it's really important that an artist stay true to who they are, and that yeah, sure, it's a business, but don't let the business side of it um, affect how you feel in your core about what you're doing. And, um, and, you know, and, and also, you know, you asked me about the make or break moment. I don't think there are a lot of make or break moments. I don't think that's real. Um, I think, you know, uh, so, so don't buy into that. That I think is more of like a, a, uh, that's constructed by an industry that is interested in you being something for them to make a lot of money. But um, you don't. That's not the only way to earn a living doing this. So, uh, you know, I would say do with that what you will. <laughs> you know, you don't. You don't have to be a huge celebrity to to have a middle class and a living to to have financial security through music. And a lot, the industry will tell you that. The industry will tell you otherwise. Um, so, you know, that's been my experience so far. Yes. Well, that's amazing. Well, look, this is, look, we eventually got here. This is amazing. And like I said, I mean, it has just been brilliant to, to, to eventually sort of track you down in a nice way. Yeah. Great. Thank you for doing it. And yeah, like I said, we're touring in April, so I don't know when you put these things up, but if you want to, if you want to maybe put it up around that time, if you're going to do it again, maybe put it up again around that time. Yes, absolutely. and um, yeah, and thank and thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, well, take care, Steve, and uh, yeah, have a great day. Thanks a lot. Sure, David. Take care. Bye bye. See you. Bye. Bye.